Hello, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. This week we've got a really exciting guest. We've got Pete Wargent, co-founder and CEO of Alan Wargent Property Advisory. He's written four finance and investment books, including Get a Financial Grip, Four Greenhouses and a Red Hotel. And in the podcast, we get into selecting the right type of property, the power of leveraging and compound growth, and starting with why. Without further ado, here's Pete. Pete, thanks for joining us. Pleasure. Now, um, I just wanted to kick off with uh, a bit of a sort of a bio or an introduction. So, so who are you and, and, and what do you do? I am, well, as you said, Pete Wargent. I'm a uh, property advisory I work in. I have a buyer's agency. I also offer property advisory to hedge funds and international funds. Um, so I have a couple of strings to my bow. I also have a financial education company. So there's a few different bits and pieces that keep me busy. Um, as you can hear, I'm an Englishman by birth, but yeah. uh, lived in Australia for a long time now. And um, in terms of uh, us sort of getting to know you a, a little bit on the personal side, what what, uh, what posters were given prime real estate on the bedroom walls as a youngster? Well, as a, as a POM, as you could probably guess, uh, lots of football and cricket posters, mainly a long-suffering Spurs fan uh, for my sins. And um, yeah, so it's mainly, mainly sport. Yeah, good on you. And uh, how, how did you get started in, in property? What was your sort of first investment? Well, our first investments were actually um, in the share market, but uh, I'm going to show my age here. It was actually my, my wife that got us into property with her first purchase, um, which is uh, more than 20 years ago now, but uh, actually back in United Kingdom in a place called Cambridge, which is about 45 minutes out of London. I've uh, still got that house today and it's um, it's actually even outperformed the, the London property market with uh, capital growth of about four or five hundred percent. But actually in terms of Australian property, um, we were based in Sydney uh, about 12 or 13 years ago and we started out eastern suburbs, Darling Harbour, Inner West, uh, those kind of areas and we've actually never sold a property. So. Um, in all the years of buying, we've always uh, held on to them. Uh, more recently, we've been investing in Victoria and Brisbane. Yeah, and that is an interesting concept that you sort of talk about in your book at length, that uh, holding on to, to property. So we, we definitely want to get into that. You've, um, you've, you've been described as one of Australia's best uh, or brightest financial minds, the most knowledgeable person on real estate markets, and an opinionated little twit. Um, you're writing all your own reviews, are you? <laughs> I think some money must have changed hands in some of those reviews. <laughs> Maybe not the third one. Uh, the third yeah, one, yeah. The third one was uh, admittedly uh, said about yourself by yourself, I think, or it might have been uh, your uh, your university professor. Yeah, probably true. I think, um, yeah. I mean, I, I like to try and um, cover a broad range of um, financial information on my blog. So, but my uh, professional career was actually in finance with. Uh, Deloitte. I was a director at Deloitte uh, some years ago. Um, so I don't just talk about property when I when I do my blogging and um, writing articles for the media. So I, I try to uh, bring a broader scope where possible. Yeah, and um, just sort of getting getting back a, l a little bit to, to some of your your highlights as well. You you achieved financial freedom at uh, at thirty three. You obviously had uh, a high powered uh, job at uh, an AXS listed um, company, and um, all this with with long hair. Uh, you're really bucking a trend. <laughs> so the the long hair is a relatively recent addition. I, I think. Um, in the in the professional services environment, having uh, facial hair and long hair wasn't really uh, the dumb thing. But uh, 
that's uh, one of one of the things that being self-employed uh, does afford you is the opportunity to uh, to dress a little differently at times. But um, yeah, I, I was um, a chartered accountant by profession, so very straight down the line kind of career. Uh, but an invaluable um, way to learn about how businesses work and how um, the economy and, and financial markets work as well. Yeah, it's obviously going to give you a, a great grounding. I mean, accountants are some of the best people to run businesses, um, such as you do. And obviously that uh, financial analysis has, has given you an amazing ability to dissect property information. And just looking at your or your blog, we, we get re- right into the nerdy nuts and bolts on a, on a day, daily basis there. Yeah, that's uh, it's kind of cathartic for me because... Uh, yeah, my, my friends and my wife don't really like listening to it too much, so I get it all down on my blog every day. But uh, yeah, look, uh, over the, the, the last few years, I've built up quite a, a, a fan base or readership there. I've well past a million blog hits now and uh, getting plenty of interest from overseas as well, which is great. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, um, you, you, you obviously, um, you're an Englishman, as you, you reference, and, and the listeners will be able to hear. Um, you, you also, interestingly, when you sort of did get to the point where you had financial freedom, you took a year off uh, and a, a lap in Australia in a, in a combi van to sort of, I guess, see, see Australia, your, your, your new adopted uh, country, and, and also to have a look at property markets as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that trip? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I wouldn't necessarily think of myself as a particularly entrepreneurial type of person, very, um, a very traditional type of professional career. Uh, but one of the things I did discover is that once you've built an asset base that can go out and work for you um, on a daily basis, um, that can actually give you the confidence to then um, move away from reliance on full-time employment. And um, yeah, as I mentioned, we we're pretty lucky with the, the London and uh, surrounding property markets in the UK, and then we had um, we had another, um, I suppose, uh, strongly performing period in Sydney property as well. And I think um, once you start to see the fruits of um, capital growth and, the, and particularly the compounding effect, uh, that can actually give you the confidence to step away from a full time career um, with a bit more um, backing, I suppose. And um, so we, we actually took 15 months out um, to go and travel. We, we did, as you say, we drove around Australia to actually go and see some of this great country. We also did a, a world cruise. And that was actually when I wrote my, my first book, it was during that period. And it just gave us a bit of breathing space to think a bit about you know, what do we really want to do um, from a business point of view? Because um, while traveling's great, I wouldn't want to do it necessarily permanently um, and you need a purpose to your every day so um, that, that that trip just gave us some breathing space and some ideas um, to think about. Yeah and you obviously uh, it enables you to, to chat in a bit more detail about those property markets and obviously it's easiest to see see the numbers but you reference in, in your, your book uh, about you know just things like graffiti and little things like that that you you don't notice until you've got your, your boots on the ground. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, uh, coming from um, a, a mining or resources location, um, as I do myself from South Yorkshire, I, I've seen how um, cyclical those places can be. I mean, uh, Britain went through um, the coal miners' strike way back in the 1980s. Um, and I mean, Australia, a very different, um, different type of economy today. But um, nevertheless, we have seen just how cyclical resources can be. And at that point in time, 
around 2011 we were just coming up to the very peak of the the resources construction boom and all kinds of uh, exuberance happening in those property markets um, in fact uh, my former employers Deloitte were uh, often derided for calling the peak of the mining boom 2004 5 6 7 <laughs> right. had a few cracks at it um, but um, yeah, when the, when the top did come, the, the downturn has been very sharp um, and yeah, there's a lot of pain being seen in some of those uh, regions and, and in particular in some of those property markets. So um, when you've seen some of those things firsthand, it does give you a different perspective. Yeah, for sure. And now these resource states are, are potentially, you know, maybe good investments in the, in the short term as well, as they've had quite a lot of time of, of low growth. We've seen commodity prices changes. So it'll be interesting to sort of see what happens there. Um, I, I did want to just touch on another uh, little dot point on your resume. You, you did some work for East Timor Central Bank. Now, how do you get a gig like that? that now, that's not going to be on SEEK, surely. <laughs> now that was uh, that was via my work at Deloitte. So um, yeah, we had a, a, a year or two in East Timor, which was a fabulous experience. Um, amazing country if you ever get the chance to visit. Um, and um, as you probably read in the news, um, Timor has a petroleum fund uh, from its deposits there. So uh, the the work was obliquely related to that, uh, but fascinating place and uh, yeah, definitely a place worth visiting if you can. Yeah, and an interesting sort of comment was was made in your book about uh, you know moderating your spending and living expenses and that sort of thing, and and that sort of seems like it's been a strategy of yours uh, in in wealth creation as well. Yeah, I think uh, I mean the, the simplest points are often overlooked, but um, you know spending less than you earn it sounds like an obvious thing, but um, in today's uh, consumer-focused society, it's very easy to. Um, to uh, at the very least spend every pay rise. And if you're going to actually get ahead, um, spending less than you earn and investing the difference is, is always the starting point. And that is the main thread of, of, of your book, Four Greenhouses and a Red Hotel, which I, I do want to sort of touch a, a little bit on today. You're, um, you, you, you had a, a fairly good grounding in, in moderation by, by going to, to Wales on holidays every, every year to camp in the rain. What, what did that sort of teach you about moderation? Yeah, well, that was uh, that was a part of my childhood. Um, yeah, my my parents, uh, my my dad was a um, probation officer or a social worker, as you probably say in Australia. Family of seven, so um, yeah, we, we weren't uh, jetting off overseas on holiday. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, obviously the budget was a bit tight at points in time. But um, yeah, I think uh, I mean holidays have been one of the big ticket items that people spend up big on these days. Uh, weddings, cars being other ones. Um, and I, I think uh, you know, there's nothing wrong with spending spending money, but I think it should be done in a considered fashion. Um, and I think living beyond your means is the key thing to avoid for investors. It, it is a very simple concept. I mean, spending less than you earn, investing the difference. Spending less than you earn just sounds really, really simple, but we're not doing it, are we? And most of us aren't doing it. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I think it's um, if the, the the story of the economy really over the, over recent decades has been the triumph of consumerism, um, and you only really need to to think about your average day. I mean, we're sitting in front of screens now. Um, you go to to work, you sit in front of a screen. Um, even in food courts, you go to the gym, you, you line up facing a screen. We're um, we're becoming conditioned towards. Um, 
the, the whims of advertisers and it makes it very difficult for young people um, because we're sold we're sold a lifestyle dream and um, it's, it's something that it's, it's difficult to, to move away from really especially especially in higher income earning positions there's an expectation of lifestyle that goes with that um, it doesn't as I say it doesn't mean you can't spend and enjoy life but it's probably better that you've uh, you've built a solid financial base first rather than um, spending too much while you're uh, trying to work your way up that ladder. Yeah, so delayed gratification, I guess. It's funny how um, you do talk about in your book the sort of the salary trap and why just getting a higher salary is not the best, necessarily the best way from a tax perspective and a strategy perspective to achieve financial freedom. And it is funny, isn't it? I mean, I can sort of remember 10 years ago, maybe drinking $12 bottles of wine, and then five years ago, they ratcheted up to 18. Now, from time to time, they get up to 30 it's it's a common theme isn't it when, when when people earn more money their expectations of their holidays and the wine they drink and and the purchases that they make that they they sort of almost follow with perfect correlation sure and um uh, in most professional jobs these days um people are expected to work long hours and work very hard and um there's inevitably a feeling that you do deserve a, a treat at the end of a, a busy and long week um, but yeah as I say it's, it's really about um, it's not necessarily about trimming the budget down to the last cent but it's more about considered spending and um, having a, a proper household budget I think the trouble with budgeting is it sounds so tedious uh, even for an account it does that um, you, you might be better to think of it as a spending plan rather than um, just a just a budget now, you personally were on your way to a, a pretty high paying job if you'd stayed the course. Um, you decided to, to chuck it all in. Uh, I'm not sure if that was the, the, the long hair, you know, about to, to, to drag you off the noble path of chasing the corner office and the big bucks, but what, what, what made you decide to, 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 to change that and change your mindset and, and look towards financial security? I think it was really... Um I mean, being an accountant, I've always pre prepared my own sort of P&L and balance sheets. And I think it was once I started to see uh, really the compounding effect of good quality investments. Um, and you reach a position eventually, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does take time. You reach a, posi a position eventually where you can see that you can earn uh, far more from, um, from buy and hold investing than you can from... Um, a heavily taxed salary um, and I think it was really just that realization as uh, the equity started to build uh, particularly up to a position um, where you have the choice to actually uh, liquidate a few assets and invest in um, income earning investments um, that you be I began to feel that I didn't necessarily need to be working 60 hour weeks um, to to, to um, only to pay you know 46 and a half percent tax on my salary income so um, but it, yeah, it wasn't an overnight thing it was really it was a gradual realization as the um, the plan that we put into effect eventually began to work yeah fantastic now in, in your your book you, you highlight the importance of, of a balance of property and shares obviously you've got a financial background you've you, you've you've got a lot of runs on the board with with equities and index funds and that sort of thing we're, we're um, a bit of a, a property podcast here but why is um, is diversification of both uh, across both property investment vehicles important do you think 
Well, I think it's, um, as you say, the key word's diversification. I think um, a lot of people, probably including myself, are feeling very smug about the, uh, the performance of the Sydney property market. But I think what people always need to remember is that all all markets are by necessity are cyclical and they'll go through strong periods, but uh, every asset class will have um, downturns and probably periods where people are, are wishing that they'd never been involved in the first place. Um, so I think, I mean, there are different ways to diversify. So you mentioned different asset classes, so property, equities and business. Um, but there are other ways to diversify too. So diversifying over time is another one by staging your investments. So uh, purchasing maybe one investment a year, for example, is another way. Um, but also geographical diversification. So for example, in our portfolio, we have properties in London, Cambridge, the southeast of England and elsewhere in the UK, but also um, uh, around different parts of Sydney, Victoria, Brisbane. So the, the idea of, of building a portfolio like that, um, it can save you some land tax for one thing, but um, I suppose just as importantly, um, you'll generally find that when one property market is performing exceptionally well, such as London and Sydney has been, have been recently, um, some of those other markets might not be doing so well and vice versa. So um, it's really about spreading your risk. Now, getting to, to, to property investing, you, you, you mentioned in the beginning of the book that people should start with their why, a bit like Simon Sinek. What, why do you think it's important to take this approach? And, you know, did losing a mate when you were young affect that viewpoint? What, what, what was it about starting with, with the why that was important to you? I think it's, um, I suppose the, re the reason is, it doesn't matter what path you take, whether it's share markets, uh, starting your own business, property investment, at some point you're going to come across major challenges. So that's just the nature of it. Nothing goes... 100% smoothly. Um, so, what it really, what um, success is really based upon how you respond to those problems. Because if you have a resolve to just keep on going, regardless of um, adverse outcomes or problems that you may come across, then eventually you will reach your end goal. But if you um, like many people, you dabble in investing, but at the first sign of trouble, then you just give it all up. Um, then you're almost guaranteed to have a suboptimal outcome. So I think um, it, it does pay to spend some time at the beginning just thinking about what your ideal day would be, how you would, um, you know, how would you run your own business or would you be, where would you be living, things like that. Because um, if you don't have an end goal in mind, the, the motivation can drop away. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's powerfully important, and sometimes you know trying to achieve these things are, are difficult day to day. And without that sort of long term viewpoint, it's it's difficult to know what you're doing it for. Just getting uh, getting on to, to, to property, you 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 mentioned that it took you around fifteen years to achieve financial freedom through obviously property and and equities and and things such as that. You also mentioned that around two real estate cycles is, is probably a good time frame for property investors to look at to achieve financial freedom. Why is this the case? Um, well, I think the, the, the real reason is when you start out by necessity, you start out small. So for most people, that means literally by buying one investment. Um, if you're able to save deposits, you might be able to buy two or three. But um, it, even the capital growth on 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 um, a small portfolio of properties, maybe two or three, is unlikely to be enough to, to get you to your end goal. 
Um, so for most investors, what it probably means is taking some of the equity out of your um, your gains and actually reinvesting um, in further further assets and probably in another market that hasn't experienced the boom period. Um, but if you're able to do that um, and go through a second cycle, you'll find that your, your portfolio is uh, by that stage much larger and therefore the, the compounding effect is much more powerful. So. Um, you know, it's not to say it's impossible to um, create financial freedom through one market relatively quickly, but for most people, the reality is you, you probably need to go through a couple of cycles to really benefit from the upside. Yeah, and the title of your book, Four Greenhouses and a Red Hotel, is is maybe an, an accidental reference to the amount of properties that you suggest someone needs, or, or, or was that was that purposeful? You, you sort of say in the book that around sort of five, six, or a handful of, of properties is, a, is about the sweet spot of, of what you need to, to achieve, I guess, a comfortable retirement. Yeah, well, I think it was obviously a, a reference to Monopoly without using the word and getting sued. But, <laughs> I think, though, I mean, there is, a, yeah, as you say, there's an element of truth in that. I mean, it's not to say you can't then go on to build a much larger portfolio of properties. And most um, successful investors probably do go on to do that. But um, I think, um, yeah, as you say, if you've got a, a, a core portfolio of five or six really good properties, um, because of the leverage that it can be um, used in property markets, then you, you, you may find that that's sufficient to actually build the level of equity that you need to create financial freedom. And if you, if you want to talk numbers, um, um, if you're thinking you might want a retirement income of say $150,000 per annum, then you probably need to have equity in the region uh, of around $3 million today, um, just because we're in a lower interest rate environment. Um, so if you're investing 3 million at 5%, there's your um, 150,000 per annum. So those are the kind of numbers that you might be talking now it obviously sounds very intimidating to somebody starting out but um, I suppose the key message is um, that just by compounding your results over time uh, what seems unachievable when you start out gradually does become achievable uh, through that uh, multiplying or compounding effect exactly and you you do say the best time to, to start investing is, is today or, or yesterday if you can manage it Get, getting back to your monopoly reference and and obviously I, I'm now worried about the litigious nature of, of, of that company as well um, but you mentioned growing up um, uh, with with a house full of brothers and there was one particular brother that absolutely gave you a, a hiding in in monopoly um, and he was a bit of a mentor to you there was something about his sort of rational approach to the game that you think correlates with successful property investing what what made him so good at that and, and what are the sort of lessons we can learn for investing yeah that's uh, my older brother Nick who's uh, these days he's a lawyer so uh, yeah better be careful what I say about him <laughs> uh, yeah I mean he, he took a very rational approach um, to, to board the board game of Monopoly um, he, he understood it's a numbers game as investing always is um, it's also about understanding the odds and when the odds are in your favour, placing a big bet. So um, that's um, something that he was able to do well. And, and I think if you've ever played Monopoly, you know that the, the key to success there is to invest hard and, and early um, and to, to build those, those assets early on in the game because um, it's very hard to come back later on if you don't have that initial asset base. Um, and that to some extent mirrors the, the real world really. 
I, I think it absolutely does. Interestingly, Monopoly has the sort of passing go $200, which is, uh, I, I guess, a, a little bit of a hint of the powers of inflation as well. Uh, and you talk about uh, having targets for what you want to, to retire on as an income. Inflation's chasing us all the time. Um, how do we sort of factor inflation into assessing our, our investments? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think uh, inflation, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about, oh, you know, a lot of these developed countries are going to follow Japan into deflation. I, I think I, I was never a subscriber to that, as you probably read in my first book back in 2011. I think um, and what we've really learned in recent years is that um, policymakers and central banks, they're going to throw the kitchen sink at the risk of deflation. Um, we've seen interest rates cut to zero right across uh, Europe, the United Kingdom, United States, um, Australia, fortunately, hasn't got to that point. But um, but even beyond that, we've seen um, quantitative easing, um, bond purchases, so pretty much anything to, to stave off the risk of deflation. So I think if people are going to learn anything from that, then it's really um, we need to invest in inflation busting assets like equities and property um, for the long term, because um, as you say, the, the value of the, the cash in your pocket is, is going to devalue uh, year after year and the, the compounding effect is almost working in reverse there uh, against you. So um, yeah, it's very important that you've got um, assets that act as an inflation hedge for you. Yeah, and I do want to talk about uh, compounding and, and, and leverage. But before we sort of talk about, uh, you know, a little bit more specifics of the types of property and that sort of thing, you, 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 you talk about self-sabotage as a concept um, quite, quite often and, and, and speak about why people aren't, generally aren't successful with real estate. Can you highlight some of the, the main reasons why, why you think the, the, the majority of us uh, are not investing in property and a very small percentage of us are, are getting portfolios around that five and six properties. I think we're talking around about 15,000 people uh, in Australia having six properties or more, which is a, a pretty surprisingly low number for for Australia being a, a, a property loving nation. Yeah, I mean, I'm a numbers man. I, I, I go back to the statistics and what the stats tell you is that most people who own an investment property will sell it in within a remarkably short space of time, and I think um, you know, it's one of the most common laments you hear from um, long-term investors. There's nearly always a property in the portfolio that they, uh, you know, they they bought for twenty thousand and sold for twenty-two thousand and thought they'd made a tremendous gain. Yeah. <laughs> and I think um, I mean I, I was quite lucky in that. Um, whether by design or, or otherwise, is that we've always held on to our properties, even after um, you know seeing a market triple in seven years and things like that. Because, um, for one thing, the the transaction cost of buying and selling property um, can be very high, particularly for investors, because you've got capital gains tax and stamp duty, uh, potentially agent fees, which all chip away your returns, exactly. but also. Um, as you probably are well aware yourself, the serviceability criteria for new investor loans are in the process of being changed over time. And I think it may be harder to get access to credit in, in the future um, than, it, than it was when I was starting out. So I can remember uh, going to a mortgage broker and, and him saying I could borrow seven or eight times my salary, no deposit needed. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> those are the days. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I think it's a good thing that that's no longer 
going to be, uh, I think it's a good thing for the market, but um, I think for individuals, um, it probably means that people will find it harder to build very large portfolio um, portfolios of property. So I think if you can buy good quality assets and focus on um, the best location you can afford to buy in, then the compounding effect, uh, the longer it can work for you, the better. Now, talking about these assets, you mentioned a, a value sweet spot in your, your book of around sort of 500 to 800K. That's probably a, a couple of years um, outdate now. And, and on your website uh, in Sydney, you sort of mentioned you're around the sort of 700 to 2.5 sort of mark. And I'm, I'm guessing you prefer a little bit closer to, to, the, to the bottom end of that bracket. Is the idea based on the proximity the, to the mean value and the sort of inherent competition if you're looking to, to sell the asset or or at least revalue? Yeah, there's a few different things, really. I, I think um, being close to the median value for the area you're investing in, um, it can actually just help to smooth volatility. So um, what I mean by that, if you were to invest in, for example, a premium house in, um, I don't know, Watson's Bay or Vaucluse, you, you'd generally find that the, the long-term result from such a, an asset would be very good, but the, the journey would be more volatile because they're naturally uh, very many fewer buyers of that type of property due to the the expense. Um, but the other thing is that the higher the purchase price, as a general rule, uh, rental yields tend to to fall away. So serviceability can be very difficult. Um, so there, there are really uh, two or three good reasons there that being somewhere close to the median price. Um, that, as you said, there are more people competing at that price level. It tends to just keep a floor under values um, and it can just make the investment journey a less volatile one. And um, getting onto houses versus units, you, you mentioned you don't have a specific preference for, for either, but you do like to favour sort of two bedroom units around 100 square metres. There's the old sort of uh, adage, land appreciates and building depreciates. You're, you're not a big subscriber to that belief, are you? Well, I, I think I am. I, I think um, I would add just a caveat it's funnily enough I was talking about this only yesterday with somebody I think if there was one thing I'd probably change about the book I wrote in 2011 um, I think it's just um, it was something that nobody was talking about at the time um, but the the prospects uh, the combination of low interest rates um, and an unprecedented uh, burst of activity from investors in mainland China has really encouraged the overdevelopment of um, apartments in certain areas. Um, so in Sydney, uh, places like Parramatta and Blacktown, there's just um, tower blocks coming out of the earth <laughs> on every street corner, but also around the airport and places like that. Um, Brisbane, um, yeah, well, if you've been to Brisbane, you don't need to, me to tell you, but all around um, Newstead and Fortitude Valley, uh, the South Bank, even in places like Tawam, there's just very, very many apartments being constructed. So I think that might have just changed the supply and demand dynamic a bit. Um, and for that reason, houses probably about performed units on average over the last five or six years. Um, so that's maybe one thing just to bear in mind is just the oversupply factor. But um, I'll give you an example. I, mean, I recently bought... Um, uh, an attached dwelling in, in New Farm, um, so it's not a detached house, but um, the, the, the fact that land appreciates and buildings depreciate, as you say, um, even if you're owning a relatively small share of the land in a suburb like New Farm, the, the long-term result will still be very good because uh, the value of land in, in this area is extremely high and, uh, and rising. So 
Um, I think uh, the adages are useful to a point, but then you've got to try and apply those to the markets as they are today. Yeah, and I've certainly noticed myself um, sales agents contacting me saying they have fantastic investments in in units in Brisbane and and certain areas where there's oversupply, and and that sort of raises some some warning bells as well. But um, when you're looking at, let's say you are looking at units, you're looking in areas where there's some inherent scarcity, and and you you mentioned the grid system of, of Sydney and the fact that most of our major capital cities are where the population resides, and they're all on the coast. So how, how does sort of scarcity uh, fall into to, to your criteria when you're looking at a property? Yeah, so um, I suppose if you're looking at uh, where new supply can be constructed, um, I mean, suburb, uh, New Farm is a very good example. Uh, there's high restriction on building. It's fully landlocked on the peninsula, um, very leafy green suburb. There are very, very few new developments. There are a couple just at the very top end of of New Farm, which is really uh, close to Fortitude Valley, but essentially in the heart of the suburb, uh, very, very little uh, new supply can be constructed. So it's um, a naturally constrained supply. Uh, But if you're looking for scarcity, things uh, like um, a view, a water view, for example, I mean, that's something which will always have uh, value and it it makes your assets somehow unique or different from others um, in the area. So there are different ways to achieve scarcity. Um, But I think if you're looking at um, a unit on the the 35th floor of a tower block, well, almost by definition, there is no scarcity because there are hundreds of other properties just like yours. Um, Some of the new builds are a bit on the the small side, shall we say. So um, yeah, I think um, regardless of whether you're buying a house or an apartment, um, it's really finding that um, something that's in high demand, but also um, scarce in nature. Now we've talked a little bit about sort of the the types of, of properties that that you favour, but I want to talk a little bit about property markets as well. You, you're an advocate of, of counter cyclical investing. What what does that mean, and and how can we sort of see a location that that is ripe for growth? Yeah, I mean, as a general rule, um, I mean, although I do own uh, quite a few uh, regional properties. Uh, generally speaking, um, the demand is highest uh, in the capital cities, relatively close to the employment hubs. Um, you know, counter-cyclical investing is really about uh, trying to invest when sentiment is low. So I would say at the moment, um, you know, Perth will be coming back onto the radar, maybe not just yet, but if you give that another um, year, potentially um, the sentiment in Western Australia is currently very low. Um, so. That's the um, that's the counter cyclical element. Um, just as an example, when I was buying in Sydney um, through the period leading up to the financial crisis, I mean people were practically uh, giving properties away, or at least um, they couldn't give them away quickly enough because people were f- fearful of falling prices. Which, um, yeah, looking back, of course, people were you know, today's very hot market. We um, were very surprised about that. So um, yeah, that's what counter-cyclical really means. It's um, being greedy when others are fearful and vice versa. Yeah, and you you mentioned that the long-term trend for the property market should sort of track household incomes over the long term. Are there any factors that will alter this correlation, like super funds going into property? And and how do we sort of explain what's happening in in Sydney, where we've we've got booming prices, but wage growth is, is pretty soft? Yeah, so at the macro level, I think um, you'll find that 
over time going forward. I mean, there have been factors historically that have pushed house prices ahead of income. So uh, a, a very simple factor has been uh, females coming into the workforce and then the growth of two income households. Um, another factor has been interest rates falling from um, a decade of double digit levels to around about half that today. So um, there, are, there are obviously sort of those macro factors that have helped to keep house prices growth ahead of incomes. Um, but um, yeah, you mentioned some of the more micro factors like super funds and so on. I think though um, in a country like Australia where you don't have um, death duties in the same way that we do in Britain, um, there can be a lot of family wealth built up. Um, so in some of the prestige locations, uh, prices have really become disconnected from incomes entirely because the people buying them are using equity, business wealth, inherited wealth, um, and where there's a genuine scarcity of uh, property or uh, prices, of, they're almost uh, marching to their own drum to some extent. Yeah, and, and, and I want to talk about demographic trends as well. That, they have a big influence on property markets. You, you mentioned you know, females coming into the workforce. Obviously, we've had you know, changes to the availability of, of credit, but we, we've had a lot of um, interstate migration. We've had pretty strong population growth. H- how do these dem- demographic trends sort of influence property markets and, and how can we use some of the things like Bernard Salt's uh, releases to, to, to get an idea about where we should be investing? Yeah, I mean, demographics are hugely important to the property market. So um, we mentioned the mining boom previously. Well, that, that rolled into a population boom for Australia. At the peak, uh, the population was growing by uh, more than 450,000 per annum. Uh, uh, population growth has slowed at the national level, largely because of those resources, regions and states. Um, but Sydney and Melbourne has kept this population growth very high close to 100,000 per annum. So those two locations have been creating jobs on the back of construction. Um, if, you, if you were to ask me going forward, what I think is already starting to happen and it's not yet captured in the data, which lags, and that, that'll be interstate migration. Um, we've already seen people from Perth heading to Melbourne, but um, I think at this stage in the cycle, you would expect to see people leaving Sydney in favour of southeast Queensland. Um, I think we've seen about four or five quarters of that already, but actually the data is is behind, and I think that's actually already taking off. So uh, I think the uh, the outcome of that will be some stronger growth in southeast Queensland's markets, um, but maybe not in some of those apartment markets that are oversupplied. You you talk about uh, property markets having natural speed limits as well. Is is that is, is that what you're talking about when you're saying that Sydney is, is likely to slow as affordability becomes worse and, and people move out? Is that an example of, of something that helps set a speed limit for the property market? Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, the, with stamp duties as high as they are now in places like Sydney, um, there comes a point where uh, while speculative buying keeps prices moving north, um, there's a lot of people now who are moving towards renting or moving into state or uh, simply because of the affordability factor. And you only need to look at um, the Western Sydney markets where um, where prices are actually getting ahead of what people can actually afford to pay. So um, if interest rates were to nudge up a notch, then, um, then yeah, I mean, I think that those markets could easily slow. 
Now, your, your viewpoint is that we should not necessarily look at what's happening today and tomorrow and, and you say things like you make more money while you sleep. Um, your, your time frame for, for assessing property is a, a bit longer than maybe people would, would be used to. You talk about thinking about what the demands are going to be in 20, 30 or, or 40 years. Has, has that been a philosophy that you've heard to throughout your investing career? Yeah, 100%. I think... Um... Yeah, I think far too uh, too often in today's world, I mean, it goes back to what you talked about, delayed gratification, but in, in property terms, people are so interested in uh, the next hotspot, what's going to happen in the next six months, uh, nine months, 12 months. I mean, you really can't predict. Um, there's so many variables, you can't really predict accurately um, what will happen over such a short time frame. So I've never really focused too much on that. Um, all I really have looked to do um, to, to some extent, try to buy counter-cyclically, but just um, trying to buy in the areas that over the long term, I think, well, there will be high demand. So, in, uh, for example, in Sydney, I've got properties in the inner west or Bondi. I mean, places like that uh, near the beach, there's a relatively constrained supply uh, close to the city. There, there will always be a long-term demand. And in Brisbane, um, really, those... The, the, suburbs that are very easily commutable to the city or being high demand and I'm sure Melbourne the same. Your, your, your philosophy on leverage and compounding capital growth seems to fit pretty well with the title of the podcast Geared for Growth. Can you run us through the concepts of, of leveraging and, and compounding and, and capital growth and, and why these are important concepts for us to, to master and consider? So, I mean, leverage, if you were to define it, really means doing doing more with less. So, uh, in, in property, we traditionally think of borrowing the bank's money to invest. I mean, obviously, that comes at a cost uh, in terms of the mortgage repayments. But what it does mean is that, um, that uh, everyday people can invest with more money than they would be able to otherwise. Um, I suppose the, the, the flip side to that is that um, the leverage such as using mortgage debt actually magnifies results both good and bad so it means that it's important to have a long-term outlook and to try and de-risk investment to the extent possible. Um, compounding is really um, is, uh, the, 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 um, is probably the most powerful and important um, concept in, in finance really. Um, it's, the, it's the multiplying effect of, of capital growth or, or so an asset that grows by 10% um, in year one uh, might increase from 100 to $110, but um, the, the, comp the multiplying effect of that over time becomes very powerful. So an asset that's growing at 10% uh, per annum will double in value in just over seven years, even though intuitively you might believe it might take 10 years. Um, now, th while that might not seem all that significant when you're talking small numbers in the early years, as you multiply out over time, particularly if you're combining that with leverage, uh, the results can be astonishingly powerful, uh, which is why you hear about people selling houses in Sydney today for 50 or 100 times what they paid for them. It doesn't seem possible at the point of purchase, but it's, it's the impact 
of leveraging compounding. Exactly. And and you talk about generational attitudes to, to money and finance, and it, it's, it's a mindset of the past that you should save up for something and buy it when you've got the money, or you should strive to pay something off and then, you know, never a, a borrower or a lender be, you know, there's all sorts of adages like this, but um, it, it's really for, for, for some of the people that, are, that have grown up with those sorts of wealth advice, it, it really is a a big shift in the in changing your mindset isn't it yeah it definitely is even in one generation i think back um to, to my parents uh, there was uh, i mean very sort of socialist or left-wing background anyway but um but even back then the uh, the 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 mindset was very much um be a homeowner but um yeah even investing in equities was was really only for the for the for the um, the top echelons of society, and also um, owning second homes and holiday homes, it was really only the preserve of the wealthy. I mean, investment property um, probably wasn't a very uh, popular term back back then, and um, yeah, it was very much ab- about um, reliance on uh, the defined benefit pension schemes, which unfortunately are no longer with us for most people today. So, um, so really the the onus has shifted back onto to us because we won't have those uh, generous ben- pension schemes. Um, so therefore, it's really down to to individuals to to invest for their own retirement. And there are a number of reasons why we resist that, aren't there? I mean, there are people that say, "Oh, you know, I'm doing okay," or it seems a bit greedy to to own a number of properties. But you you, you advocate a, a process of calculating your net worth, and and I've done this a, a few times, and it and it can be rather humbling. What why do you think it's so important uh, as something to do to 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 help give you an idea about where you need to be and where you are now? Yeah, I think it really comes down to um, having the right numbers for your retirement because um, I think that um, the, the average super balance of retirement is, is so, so low compared to what would be really needed uh, for an annuity at that point in time that if you're not going to invest for your future, then you're going to be uh, reliant on the age pension. Uh, so. I think it's it's really about um, just generating a big enough pool of assets um, or equity so that you won't have that reliance. It, it, it's obviously a really important thing and it's something that we, we want to try and get across in this this podcast is, is that um, most of us are, are going to retire unhappy or, or at least with, with not enough money to do, to do what we want to do. So it, it's important to sort of learn as much as you can about property investing, but it's a very, it's a very noisy environment. There's a lot of different media outlets um, that, are, that are trying to, to push agendas or, or clicks uh, with clickbait and that sort of thing. There are people trying to sort of steer us into different types of, of, of properties. You, you advocate being careful of who we listen to, but, but how, how do we assess people and, and how do we know who we should be listening to? Yeah, I mean, even just taking it outside of the, the property investment world, um, I often think if you want to achieve something, the best thing you can do is go and find somebody who's actually achieved what it is you want to. And um, I think um, it's, it's amazing, really, listening to property market commentary, um, a lot of vested interest, of course, as we all have an interest um, one way or another in the property market. But, but um, if you're actually serious about um, generating wealth through property, I think you'd be far better advised to to try and follow the, the types of people who have actually been there and done it, and not just over one or two years. I'm talking over 
couple of cycles or maybe three or four cycles um, because um, yeah as I, say, I mean the, the, a lot of the focus um, is through necessity today on the on the short term but there's far less um, discussion over um, what you can achieve over the, over the long term so I think it's it's really as you said about seeing through the noise and building yourself a plan to succeed over the longer term and uh, and and you're you're someone that gives quite a lot back to to the to property investors and and the community at large with, with obviously your your blog spot um, page which is very prolific uh, and you mentioned that everyone that has achieved financial success has an obligation to to give back obviously you donate part of your your income or proceeds to, to charity and you've done some volunteer work what why do you think it's important and, and how does that sort of tie into your goals and and your personal inspirations and, and or aspirations and legacy yeah I think I mean it, I mean finding a meaning or a purpose for what you do I think is always um, it's important um, you know, the investing and property and wealth and all those sorts of things it's not all about the me it's about as you said um, creating something worthwhile um, I think from an educational point of view well just like everyone else I, I learned everything ultimately from other people over time and um, I think once you've um, you know you feel like you've to some extent mastered the game um, there's uh, you have you do have an obligation to, to teach your children family friends anyone who's interested in in um, creating a better future for themselves, um, then you know, then if you can pass on that torch, then that's got to be a good thing. Now, getting back to that, we want you to be passing on as many torches as, as we can get you to today. Um, get, getting back to, to equities, it, it, it's it's far easier to diversify with with shares. H- how do we get around that with, with with real estate? I mean, obviously, you can buy five thousand dollars worth of shares in many different companies but you've got to stump up a, a fair load of cash to, to buy one property and it does expose you um, to one particular location how do we get around that with property uh, there's no easy way if you want to buy uh, quality property by necessity you'll be less uh, diversified than you would be through the share markets for example um, so that's why I always focus on quality um, I, I leave the secondary locations for other people. Um, I think um, buying the best asset you can and having a long-term outlook. I think those those are really the two things that you can do to protect yourself. But um, it is, as you say, uh, it takes a good deal of time to get diversification in property. So uh, for that reason, um, you know, you've got to try and de-risk the process to, to the maximum extent that you can. All right, so the fact that it's difficult inherently to diversify with real estate makes it all the more important to, to select the correct first property. Uh, you talk a lot about prime locations in, in major cities, um, and most of your properties match that description. How do we, how do we find that right property, and, and how important are things like proximity to, to transport hubs and things like that? Yes, yeah, so I suppose it really comes back to to budget because obviously in an ideal world we'd all own uh, fantastic properties on Sydney Harbour and all the rest of it. Um, I think with what's happened to prices over the the last decade, that's not a reality for a lot of people today. So, um, starting with a budget, it's really about um, buying in the best locations you can afford to do um, because almost by definition there is more scarcity in the the land. Um, closer um, closer to the centre of a city, we, um, just concentric rings, there's just less land and there's more demand for it. 
Um, so uh, this is what, what they call in economics the, the bid rent curve. Um, so I mean, it's not uh, not something that everyone can afford to do, but it's really about starting with the budget and uh, working out what's the, the best that you can do with the budget that's available. Well, one thing I, I do notice that, that in the types of property people like to buy, they, they like to buy something that they'd be comfortable to, to live in themselves, which you talk about a little bit. They also like to buy something that they can potentially drive past or, or in the same area because they understand you know, the, the research, they, they understand what's happening in, in their, their back door. You, you've invested in regional locations, but you don't necessarily advocate it. Uh, what's your best advice for, for, for making a decision based on the numbers rather than the emotion and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there are two things there, really. One is that people say don't buy an investment property emotionally. That's good advice. Um, but then I would just say that just there's a 10% factor there to take into account, and that's that uh, people do buy property emotionally, and therefore um, if a property looks attractive to, to you, then other people will likely feel the same way. So uh, one of the things that I... I've uh, always looked to do um, ever since the first day I started in property investment. I, I looked at locations that I thought um, I would like to live in. I know that um, that might sound as though it contradicts your point, but um, I figured I'm a young professional, good salary, uh, two-income household, locations that are close to train links to the city, 10 to 12 minutes, that kind of thing. Um, so, and in, in particular, just looking for places that I thought that would be the sorts of places that I would live in. So, um, although uh, that might sound slightly contradictory, but I do know that um, you know my my target tenant is essentially someone like me. So, therefore, um, yeah, I was using a lot of those principles, um, whereby you might say that's emotional, but it, there's there's some logic behind it too, in that. Um, uh, if I can buy the types of properties that I know will be in strong demand from young professionals, then um, I won't go too far wrong with finding a tenant. And and how do we get across the the problem of of markets like Sydney? Um, obviously, Sydney's got some great fundamentals for for long term growth, but the price of entry can be crazy, e even for people that are looking for their second, third, or or fourth property. Would you advocate? looking at regional areas or is it better to stick to capital cities that have a lower entry point or or, or should we just throw it all out the window and find someone to go in with us and, and, and Sydney all the way? Uh, I think at, at this stage in the cycle um, the reality is a lot of people can't afford Sydney. Um, I think with the best will in the world you've missed most of the cycle so um, I think um, people will be looking at alternatives now so whether that's looking interstate whether they look at Central Coast or Wollongong, and I think um, that, that that's what happens at this stage in the cycle. We saw it in 2003-04 when Sydney peaked out and prices went essentially went nowhere for a few years. Um, yeah, so I think at this point in the cycle, people will look at alternatives, and um, yeah, there's maybe something to be said for that. And and part of your role is, is helping people in, in, in buying investment properties. Obviously, you're, you're a qualified buyer's agent and co-founder of Alan Wardron. How, how do you source property and, and, and how do you help people find something that, that you really almost guarantee is going to, to grow in value over time? 
Yeah, this is where I suppose you, you, you look to try and steer away from general advice because uh, what's right for one person might not be right for another. So um, it's to some extent about quantifying um, tolerance for risk, but also doing something that's appropriate for, for the right stage in somebody's life. Um, so uh, in terms of sourcing properties, we obviously try where possible to try and find stuff um, either off-market or pre-market opportunities so you get first look at it. Um, so that's one thing that a, somebody who's active in the markets on a day-to-day basis can help you with. Um, but even uh, but listed market opportunities or auctions, it's really about matching um, the profile, the investment profile of the person in question to the right type of property. So um, it's about budget, about serviceability, future growth prospects, all of those different things um, and uh, making sure you, you get the right asset for that person. And, and it is funny, isn't it, that, that people are, are quite happy to throw their superannuation in a big pot and, and deal with a, a, a fund manager that they've never met who, who's giving them poor returns. But they, they, they want and wanting to save money and do a lot of things themselves. We certainly see that in, in our industry in quantity surveying. And there's a reluctance to, to use experts and, and buyer's agents. What, what, what value does a buyer's agent give? I mean, you, you referenced that there's there's obviously the right type of property for the right type of person they might be sort of nearing retirement with a portfolio already they might be looking at their their first investment property uh, you know h- how do you help people find what's right for them yeah I mean I, I look back in my my own investing career and when I started out I mean truthfully I didn't really know very much at all when you look back I've probably made every mistake um, that you could make <laughs> overpaying buying properties with special levies um, you know, all, all of those different things I suppose um, to, to some extent just by buying in good locations the market's been very forgiving in places like Sydney um, but I, I think um, you know, what a buyer's agent can really do is help you to sidestep many of those risks, uh, to de-risk the whole process just through their experience. Um, negotiations, the buyer's agents can often help and save you money. Um, auction strategies, um, but also really identifying the right types of properties to invest in, uh, because even if it makes just a small difference per annum, you know, just 1% per annum, um, the, the difference over time of an asset that's performing uh, marginally better can, can be huge. So um, I think there's a whole range of aspects in which a market professional can help. Um, it's just, as you say, that not everyone um, wants to spend that, that amount of money because um, they, they may feel, depending on the stage in their journey, that their, their funds will be better diverted to the next investment. I have to say that it's, it's fantastic to hear you say that uh, there was a time uh, a point in time where you had no idea really what you were doing. I, I think I think people will, will take a bit of confidence from that because you know reading reading your books and and reading your blog blog you you know you're an educated person. So it, it's fantastic to hear that um, you know we're all learning and and it is a little bit of a journey and 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 sometimes you make the wrong call. Sometimes it's hidden by a, a market that's that's going ahead any anyway. So um, you know th- thanks for sharing that with us. Yeah, I think there's probably no more important message uh, than that really is that um, whatever path you choose to take, it won't go smoothly or make mistakes. Um, uh, a lot of things are very different with the benefit of, of hindsight and 2020 vision, but all you can really do is make the best decisions that you can at any point in time and um, you just learn as you go you, you, because um, markets are always changing anyway, uh, the lending environment's changing. 
demographics are changing. So um, it's really a question of when you come across those difficult points in your investment journey, just resolving to treat those as learning um, opportunities rather than a reason to give up. Yeah, and I think that's a, a fantastic way to, to sum up the podcast, uh, Pete. Thanks very much for your time. If if people are wanting to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, take a look at my blog page. My contact details are on there. So that's just my name, Pete Wargent at blogspot.com. And uh, yeah, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to, to answer any questions or just to connect. Fantastic. And, and if there's one piece of advice you, you could impart to uh, budding property investors and, and, and seasoned property investors, what, what would it be? It's really just to understand the, the importance and the power of time and what time and compounding can do. I think um, you know, people always underestimate what they can achieve over the longer term and they probably overestimate what they can achieve in six months or a year. But it's really um, what you can do over the long term by using uh, compound growth to your benefit um, is almost immeasurable. Fantastic. Thanks, Pete. I very much appreciate your time. Pleasure, Mike. Have a good day. Cheers.